everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Strange Matters Podcast. Here at Strange Matters, we discuss everything that is mysterious, bizarre, and unexplained. I am Sean, and I will be the host for this episode. In this episode of Strange Matters, I will be discussing a historic mystery known as the Persian Princess. This historical marvel took place in 2000, when an amazing discovery was made, a mummy. This was no ordinary mummy, however, as this newfound mummy was claimed to be that of an ancient Persian princess, over 2,600 years old. This princess mummy was entombed inside a wooden sarcophagus, wearing an elaborate golden crown and mask, all encased in a carved stone coffin. At first appearances, it looked like this was the find of a lifetime, one of the most significant historical finds of the modern era, and one of the most magnificent ancient treasures ever to be unearthed in the area. However, as time went on, the story of this historical wonder started to take a darker turn. As the mummy was investigated further, a terrible secret was soon revealed. And this secret would turn the story from an amazing historical and archaeological find into a modern-day murder mystery. A reminder that Strange Matters podcast is made possible by our generous supporters over on Patreon. On Patreon, listeners can pledge a small monthly donation and in exchange can gain access to exclusive bonus episodes, which will be starting back up again in this month, July. This week, I'd especially like to thank our newest supporter, Brett. For any other listeners out there that would like to support the show, please visit our page at patreon.com slash strangematters. And now to begin the story of this modern historical mystery. In October 19th of 2000, Pakistani authorities received a tip from a citizen and became aware of a videotape of a man who was allegedly claiming to have an authentic mummy for sale. The police quickly were able to determine the man behind the video, Ali Akbar. The police paid Akbar a visit and interrogated him about this so-called mummy that he had for sale. Akbar cooperated and told the authorities where the mummy was located. It was currently at the house of a tribal leader, Wali Muhammad Riki, in the province of Baluchistan, near the Afghan border. The police followed the trail and arrived at the residence of Wali Riki, and began an investigation. Sure enough, in this man's residence was a wooden coffin, and inside what appeared to the police as some type of mummified remains. However, there was still a question as to where in the world this mummy came from, and how did it arrive at this man's house, where it was planned on being auctioned off to the highest bidder. Riki claimed that he had received the mummy from an Iranian man named Sharif Shah Baki. When questioned by the police... Riki went on to say that Baki claimed that he had found the coffin after it had become unearthed following an earthquake near his home. It was fortunate that the police had been able to locate and confiscate the remains so quickly, as the mummy was supposedly recently becoming a hot commodity in the antiquities black market. The listed asking price for the mummy was valued at over $10 million, though Riki claimed he was expecting the highest bidder to be around $1 billion dollars, though this was, in reality, most likely just a highly exaggerated hope on the man's part. When the police raid busted up the mummy-selling operation, Riki confirmed that, so far, they had received an offer of $1 million from an anonymous foreign buyer. Unfortunately, instead of a big payday, Wally Riki and Ali Akbar were arrested and accused of violating the country's Antiquities Act, a charge which had the potential to land the men in jail for a decade. As for Sharif Baki, the man who supposedly originally found the mummy and turned it over to Riki to sell, he currently remained at large. Whether that was actually the man's real name, or just an alias, or if it was even a fake name given by Riki, was never determined. 
While the two men were arrested, the police currently still had the daunting fact of having a mummy on their hands, certainly not a situation that they ever would have imagined to be in. To help determine what exactly these remains were and how to proceed, law enforcement contacted an expert, Dr. Asma Ibrahim. Dr. Asma Ibrahim, who was the curator at the National Museum of Pakistan, later gave her accounts of the day she found out about the mummy. She said, It was October 19th. I remember the date exactly. I received a call from the police. They said they wanted to show me something, so I went, and there it was. The police thought that it was a very big discovery, so they should tell everyone. They were really happy and jumping up and down and said, Oh, we've got a mummy in Pakistan. And were really proud of it, saying this was the event of the century. The box was open already, and the mummy was covered with the help of the stone coffin. I was really happy and excited. Actually, I was too excited. I couldn't concentrate on one thing. This was something very new, which I never saw before, because we have never come across such a thing in Pakistan. Of course, the crown and the mask, the whole mummy, impressed me a lot. It was a beautiful piece of art. I had always wanted to work on the mummies. I was really fascinated to work on this mummy. It was like a dream come true for me. This had certainly become an interesting and mysterious find. In the days following the discovery of the mummy, no one knew who the body could possibly be or where it originated from, since no one had ever seen an ancient mummy come from Pakistan before. Very quickly, news spread and this amazing discovery made headlines around the world. Still, there were so many questions that had to be answered, and people wanted answers fast. Ahmad Hassan Dani, a well-respected archaeologist in Pakistan, was brought in to help the investigation. Dani gave his opinion at a press conference, saying, In Pakistan, we do not have mummies at all. They must have come from outside. People say it probably may have come from Iran to Pakistan, but Iran also does not have mummies at all. Mummies are known only from Egypt. Also in the press conference, Ahmad Hassan Dani gave details about the mummy. It was wrapped in the ancient Egyptian style and rested in a gilded wooden coffin with cuneiform carvings inside a stone sarcophagus. The coffin had been carved with a large Faravahar image. The Faravahar was a symbol of the state religion of the Persian Empire. The mummy was atop a layer of wax and honey, covered by a stone slab and had a golden crown on its brow. So one of the big questions right off the bat was how did this mummy come to Pakistan in the first place? In Professor Ahmad Dani's opinion, the mummy was brought across the border into Pakistan from neighboring Iran, but it must have originated back in Egypt. It was his professional opinion that it simply could not have come from anywhere else, because it had all the telling signs of ritual mummification that were unique only to the ancient Egyptians. As a little backstory, for millennia during the time of their empire, the ancient Egyptians believed that the souls of the dead could only be saved if they were reunited with their bodies in the afterlife. Thus, it was believed that the bodies of the recently dead must be preserved for eternity. As is now well known, the Egyptians invented a way of achieving this feat, which is mummification. This ritualistic process started with specially trained morticians who would carefully remove the internal organs, such as the lungs, kidneys, and liver. Every major organ was removed, all except the heart, since the heart was seen as the receptacle for the soul and it had to be inside the body. The next step in the process would involve extracting all moisture from the body. This was done by stuffing and covering the body with a natural dyeing agent called natron. The body would then be placed away in a dark, dry place for 40 days. Lastly, the dried body would be meticulously wrapped in cloth and then cased in wood with an effigy of the person carved on the outside. The wooden coffin was then placed inside a sarcophagus. 
by following this religious ceremony and with the remains of the deceased perfectly dried and intact, the Egyptians ensured that the body was prepared and ready to be joined with the departed soul in the afterlife. So with that little history lesson said, from initial appearances and study, it would seem that this mummy found in Pakistan had gone through the ancient Egyptian ritual with the same purpose in mind. It was bound in cloth, and there was a stone coffin enclosed in a wooden sarcophagus, just like Egyptian mummies. However, there were a few differences to set this newfound mummy apart. The style of decorations on this mummy was never seen before on an Egyptian mummy. Also, the inscriptions and cuneiform script present on the mummy was that of ancient Iran, the center of the Persian Empire, and not Egyptian script. These key differences would both puzzle and amaze the experts who would study this newly discovered mummy. The archaeologist professor, Amadani, agreed that this was quite the contradiction, as it was a clash of two different cultures. Mummies were not used by the Iranians. Cuneiform writing was not used by the Egyptians. Since all mummies came from Egypt, how could this Iranian cuneiform writing be on this new mummy? This was certainly a puzzle at the time to those investigating the remains as they tried to unravel its past. Following the mummy's discovery and the initial study of it, some archaeologists speculated that it might have been an Egyptian princess married to a Persian prince. Another leading theory and belief was that whoever these remains belonged to must have been a Persian, but mummified in the Egyptian way. If this theory could be proven true, it would make this one of the most remarkable historical discoveries of the time, as it would show that the ancient Persians had copied the mummification techniques of the Egyptians and applied them to their own nobility. Dr. Bob Breer, an Egyptologist working at Long Island University, said about this exciting discovery surrounding this mummy. It would be one of the most important in the world, and there would be all kinds of scholarly papers written about it. For example, do the Egyptians send e-bombers to Persia to mummify this thing? It would be a very important mummy. Excitement and words spread about this new idea. Perhaps history, as we knew it, was not complete, and this mummy was just the first of its kind. Other Persian mummies could lay hidden around the lands, their secret kept for thousands of years. While excitement grew and new theories about changing history were running wild, others continued to work to get to the bottom of this mummy mystery. Asma Ibrahim, the woman who was one of the first experts to look at the mummy after the police had found it, was determined to pinpoint the exact identity of the mummy. Asma believed that in order to accomplish this, the first step would be translating the cuneiform inscriptions, the simple written language of ancient Persia. Asma Ibrahim used a grammar and translation book to teach herself the cuneiform script that was inscribed with the mummy. After some time, she believed she had accurately translated the inscription that was copied on the stone coffin and the center of the wooden box. Ibrahim said about this process, Slowly I could make it out. The words were making sense to me. Adama, I am. Ducta, daughter. Sariasa, Xerxes. I am the daughter of Xerxes. The name of the king was there, and as I was reading it, I was getting more and more excited. The full inscription, as translated by Asma Ibrahim, was as follows. I am the daughter of the great king Xerxes. Mazarekta, protect me. I am Rodagoon. I am. This was a very exciting development in the case of solving who this mummy belonged to. If Ibrahim's translation was correct, and the mummy in the coffin was who the transcription said she was, then that meant this mummy appeared to be a royal Persian princess. 
Today, there's not much historical information known about Princess Rodogun. There is record of her living, but her birth and death dates are unknown, as are much of the major events of her life. It is likely the princess spent much of her life in the grand city of Persepolis, along with her father Xerxes. The Persian Empire at this time was massive, stretching from the Mediterranean Sea all the way to India, and as far south as Egypt. Since it was a region owned by the Persian Empire, many Egyptian skill workers were brought to work on further construction of the city of Persepolis. It could perhaps be that this influx of Egyptians coming to the city could have led to the mummification of this Persian princess. Egyptian woodworking could also clearly be seen in the wood coffin of the Persian mummy. On the headside of the coffin was carved artwork of seven cypress trees. Seven cypress trees were also shown on the golden crown of the mummy. The cypress tree was a common icon of Persian art and was a symbol of the city of Hamadan, which was the favored city of Xerxes to hold all his celebrations. It would be further proof that this mummy would have had been someone special to have the symbol of such a grand and important city adorning her crown and coffin. Another interesting piece of information that could apply to this case was discovered around the same time. In Egypt, a recent excavation of a tomb revealed a mummy. However, this would also turn out to be a unique case. This mummy, entombed in Egypt, was in fact a Persian. Hieroglyphs in the tomb gave the man's name as Jedrbase. Artwork in the tomb showed Jedrbase dead on a slab, while the deities Anubis and Isis stood beside him. His father, in Persian clothing, was also present in this drawing. Thanks to some historical records, it was determined that Jedrbase was a Persian administrator who was living in Egypt during the time of Xerxes, who was Princess Rodogun's father. So, we have this one instance of a Persian man being fully mummified and entombed in Egypt. If this could be done of a governmental administrator, then it makes sense that perhaps the same would be done to a member of the Persian royal family. Up to this point, things were all pointing back to the theory that this mummy was in fact a Persian, and possibly even Princess Rodogun. However, the case was far from over, and the identity of this mummy was still not 100% verified. While the investigation continued, outside in the world there were conflicts regarding the ownership of the mummy, and its overall authenticity. The local press reported that the insurance companies were reluctant to cover the mummy until its legitimacy was truly proven. In the meantime, there were debates on where this mummy truly came from and what country could claim ownership. The archaeologist Ahmad Hassan Dani insisted that it was of Egyptian origin, believing that the mummy was a typical Egyptian mummy and that the cuneiform inscriptions may have been added by smugglers after the body was taken out of Egypt. Refuting Dani's claim, representatives of Iran insisted that the mummy came from their lands, claiming that an Italian archaeologist named Lorenzo Constantini had translated the inscription through examining photographs and confirmed that the mummy was a member of the ancient Persian royal family. At the same time, even Afghanistan's Taliban regime also made a claim for the mummy. While all this was going on, back at the museum in Pakistan, Asma Ibrahim was still solely focused on solving this mystery and finding out the true identity of the mummy. Ibrahim made contacts with several labs and historical experts around the world that could help finally figuring out this historical conundrum. During her time translating the cuneiform script, Asma Ibrahim noticed a number of errors. To help solve this part of the case, 
Ibrahim took photographs of the script and emailed them to London. Nicholas Sims Williams, one of the world's leaders in such translation and a professor at the University of London, looked over the pictures and gave his professional opinion on the matter. He admitted that there were some mistakes, but also that those mistakes could have easily been made in the Archimedean period when the script was in use. That's because the actual goldsmiths who would carve out the inscriptions were themselves illiterate and were instead just copying from a written script given to them. The professor said that the whole thing looked very authentic, and when compared to old Persian stone texts, the writing style seemed to be exactly right. So at this point in the story, there were clues in the coffin and on the mummy, suggesting that it was a Persian princess. The writing on the coffin was a match for the style of the era when Princess Rodogun would have lived, and there was at least one other existing case of a Persian being given the complete Egyptian mummification process. Things were looking good for those believing that this mummy was once a member of the Persian royal family. However, it was time for modern technology and techniques to be used to determine whether this mummy was legit or some type of elaborate hoax. Asma Ibrahim had the mummy x-rayed in an attempt to tell whether the supposed princess was a child or adult when she died. The x-rays revealed that the growing end of the pelvic bone, known as the epiphysis, was closed. This generally happens around the age of 21, as before that the space of the pelvic bone is still open. It was believed that the x-ray images of the person would have had been at least someone older than 21 years old. However, there was a limited amount of information to be gathered from the x-rays, as the x-rays couldn't fully penetrate through the golden mask and the golden chest plates attached to the mummy. Therefore, the next step was to put the mummy through a CT scan. Finally, at this point, the investigators had a clear view through the inside of the body, and the revelations had major impacts on the running theory of the Persian princess. The CT scan revealed that the mummy had in fact no internal organs, which would more or less be in line with the Egyptian mummification process. The scans also showed high-density material in the chest cavity, which was thought to be the mummification materials. At this point, excitement grew even higher. The x-ray showed the bones of a woman who was at least in her late 20s, and the CT proved that the woman's organs had been removed, showing that she had in fact gone through the mummification process. It would seem that everything was falling into place in the investigation to determine the true identity of this mummy. A whole new part of ancient history was being written, showing that Xerxes didn't just import Egyptian stonemasons and workers, but that the royal family could have even adopted their sacred burial rituals. However, just as all the puzzle pieces seemed like they were about to come together to form a complete picture, the entire story and explanation behind the Persian princess mummy was about to take a completely different turn, and this historical marvel was about to reveal a dark and disturbing secret. Bob Breer, the Egyptologist from Long Island University, who had early on in the investigation said the discovery of this mummy could have been one of the most important in the world, was also asked to take a look into the CT scans. While others had regarded the images as further proof of the mummy's validity, Bob Breer had a completely different point of view after he noticed a few small details. Breer had spent his entire career studying ancient Egypt, and was one of the world's leading experts in knowing every single detail of the mummification process used by the Egyptians. The ancient Egyptians had grown to a point where they were masters of preserving the body, extracting the internal organs very precisely 
and causing minimal damage to the body. One of the trickiest parts of the mummification and organ removal process was the extraction of the brain. It was here that Bob Breer noticed something off about the Persian princess. For the typical Egyptian mummy, the way the brain was removed was by using two unique tools. The first would be used to go up through the nose and puncture its way through the ethmoid bone in the cranium. The second tool was something like a miniature whisk, which would go up through the opening and swirl around the brain to break it down into a liquid-like material. Then the brain would basically just run out through the cranial opening and out the nose. However, when viewing the CT scans of the Persian mummy, the ethmoid bone remained intact. The brain had not been extracted through the nose, as had every other mummy found before. It would seem that the brain had been taken out a different way, something that the ancient Egyptians would have no reason for doing. The brain extraction of this new mummy was more of a crude job. Whoever removed the brain accomplished it by going up through the chin into the brain and breaking several bones along the way. Not only did Bob Breer notice that the brain was extracted in a completely different way, but the removal of the internal organs was also not consistent with the Egyptian method. The ancient Egyptians would make a small incision along the side of the torso of about only three inches. However, on the Persian mummy, the incision is in the middle of the abdomen, running down from the sternum, and was about eight inches long. Bob Breer sums up his opinion of the organ removal of the newfound mummy to be different and less skillfully done compared to the other mummies known to us, who all went through the same method in Egypt. Perhaps damning of all, however, was the fact that this mummy did have its organs removed, all of its organs removed. The discovered mummy of Pakistan was found to have its heart removed also, along with the rest of the abdominal organs. This is something that would absolutely not be done by an Egyptian. Bob Breer expands on this revelation by saying, The only thing left inside the body was the heart, because the Egyptians believed that you thought with your heart. They thought that the heart was the seat of intelligence. The heart had to stay in the body, because when you got to the next world, you would have to be able to think, and you would have to be able to speak to say the magical spells that was going to reassemble your body. So, due to the work of Bob Breer looking through the CT scans of the new mummy, for the first time, doubt started to creep into the story. However, this pointed out a new contradiction. The new mummy clearly went through a mummification process. However, it was now clear that it was not done by Egyptians. The thing is that no other culture of the time were known to preserve their bodies in such a manner. So, how could it be that this ancient Persian princess became a mummy in the first place? Shortly after Bob Breer's work, another expert weighed in and also cast some doubt on the case, this time focusing on whether this mummy was truly in fact Princess Rodagoon. As I mentioned before, Asma Ibrahim of the National Museum of Pakistan had worked at translating the inscriptions on the coffin. After teaching herself the grammar, she believed that the script read, I am the daughter of the great king Xerxes. However, after having a language expert take a look at the writing, this was found to be a slight mistranslation. Nicholas Sims Williams, the University of London professor who had stated earlier that the style of the writing matched up perfectly with the time period that the mummy supposedly came from, later took the time to translate the writing for himself. It was here that he spotted a few errors that didn't quite make sense in that phrase, I am the daughter of the great King Xerxes, 
that was inscribed in cuneiform on the mummy's gold chestplate. Nicholas gave an explanation for this, saying, All Persian is an inflected language that has endings to show how the words relate to one another. And in the phrase of the great King Xerxes, all the words in that phrase ought to have the so-called genitive ending to show the meaning of. The word for king, of the king, should have three extra letters at the end. These three letters, H-Y-A, have been left out in this case. So what was actually written is, I am daughter, Xerxes, great king, with none of the correct endings to show how these words all fit together. This type of massive grammatical error would not have been tolerated or even made by the expert stonemasons of the time. Even though they could not actually read, they would not have just left out entire letters at a time. Even worse than the misspellings and structure of the script, however, was using the name of the princess in the first place. Princess Rodagoon, as we know of the historical figure today, was not actually her name among the Persian Empire. Rodagoon was actually the Greek translation that has since been used in history up to today. The correct translation of the princess's name in Persian cuneiform should have been Wardagawana. Also, there is the fact that the name Rodagoon would not have even been used until some time after the princess's death. So now the writing on the mummy made even less sense. If this was a Persian princess, why would the Persians use their Greek name for their own royal family? Nicholas Sims Williams came to conclusion after his study of the inscriptions. He believed that the inscriptions on the gold chestplate were not done by Persian master stonemasons. They would have had it been done at a later date and by Greeks, most likely after Greece had conquered Persia, which was a long time after Princess Rodagoon's death. So not only was this person not mummified in the traditional ancient Egyptian way, as originally believed, but it would now appear as if the inscriptions of the mummy also appear to be fake. It was around this time that the Italian archaeologist Lorenzo Constantini made another statement. Constantini was the man who the Iranian news agency IRNA claimed to have verified the inscriptions earlier in the investigation. But now he was angrily denying, ever saying that he believed that the mummy belonged to an ancient Persian royal family. Constantini said, I never gave an interview to any Iranian journalist. I shortly talked on the telephone with an Iranian woman of the IRNA office at Rome. During the talk, I told her that the name of Xerxes was mentioned in the coffin's inscriptions. She asked, who's he? This small comment revealed the degree of knowledge of the person I was speaking to. Constantini also stated that the inscription of the coffin did not make grammatical sense, further proving that something wasn't right. Yet another sign that the mummy might turn out to be a fake was when it was determined that some lines that appear to have been used in guiding the carving of the coffin was done by lead pencils. Since lead pencils have only been around for a few hundred years, it now made it clear that the coffin was a fake as well. Much as Bob Breer had earlier used the CT scans to figure out that the mummification procedure used on the Pakistan mummy was not in line with the Egyptian method, radiologist Jeffrey Reese took a look and found an even bigger revelation, all coming from one of the smallest bones in the human body. Dr. Reese examined every single detail of the CT images and found something odd when looking at the bones of the ear of the new mummy. In the middle ear, there is an hourglass-shaped structure bone called ossicles. The ossicles are held together by tiny and delicate tendons and ligaments. What makes this important is that these tendons would degrade over time, 
and are never found in ancient remains or mummies. However, as Dr. Rees found, the tendons in the ear of this mummy woman was still perfectly intact. The conclusion to this finding could only mean one thing. This woman had not died in ancient Persia. In fact, this woman had died quite recently. At this point, it was clear. There was only one explanation for the story of this discovered mummy. Everything about it was a fake. While it was now pretty obvious that this mummy was, in fact, not Princess Rodogun of the ancient Persian Empire, a whole new set of questions were made, and this newest twist in the story. Who could pull something like this off? Why would they do such a thing? And perhaps most intriguing of all, who was this woman who had been mummified and buried in an elaborate hoax coffin? Though the experts and law enforcement investigators who had worked this case now knew it was apparently a hoax, the thought of it being a fake was almost just as mind-blowing if it had in fact been a historical-altering discovery. The sheer amount of skill, thought, and preparation needed to pull something like this off was practically unheard of. It sounded more like the plot of a historical mystery fiction novel than real life. In order to have put this together, it was believed that a team of multiple people had to be involved. Someone with both advanced knowledge of anatomy and deep understanding of the mummification process would have had to have been involved in turning a deceased woman into looking just like an ancient mummy. In fact, this person's techniques had to be so good that only one of the world's leading Egyptologist experts would be able to spot the differences used in the process for preserving this modern-day mummy. Also, an expert goldsmith would have to be involved in constructing an elaborate and beautiful crown mask and chestplate that would fit along with the exact same style as those used thousands of years ago. Another person would have to carve out the wooden sarcophagus, again following historical guidelines that very few knew about. A stonemason would also have to be involved to carve the inscriptions inside the stone coffin, which again fooled just about everyone involved in the case except Nicholas Sims Williams, who is one of the leading ancient language experts in the world. And behind this team would need to be someone who had the overall high-level knowledge of both ancient Persian and Egyptian history to be able to coordinate all of this, someone with the know-how needed to orchestrate a hoax that only a few people in the world would be able to debunk. Who this mastermind was, and what the motive was, remained a mystery. Now, the leading belief of the motive was one of simple greed. Obviously, if someone could do something like this and sell the mummy at a high price, they could potentially make a lot of money. However, this doesn't quite add up when we go back and look at how the mummy was found in the first place. Remember that Wally Riki, the man who was in possession of the mummy, says that he got the mummy from a man named Sharif Shah Baki. It was then Riki, who along with his accomplice Ali Akbar, who were then going to sell the mummy and split the profits. But it was clear from the police investigation that neither Riki or Akbar had anywhere near the level of knowledge needed or the connections to pull this hoax off themselves. So with them out of the picture, could the mysterious Sharif Baki character be the mastermind? Perhaps, but as of yet, there was no mention from Riki that he had even paid the other man for the mummy to acquire it. Unfortunately, since Sharif Baki was never found, and Riki seemed to only have a limited amount of knowledge about the man, it would seem that his exact role in all of this will remain a mystery. So not only was the people responsible for this hoax unknown, but the identity of the actual mummy was an enigma as well. There was also the question as to how the hoaxers acquired the body in the first place. It was believed that the team behind the mummy paid gravediggers or looters to get a body. 
However, since the body was determined from the CT scans to be very recently dead when it was mummified, that an extreme amount of preparation would have been needed. The gravediggers, or whoever was in charge of acquiring the corpse, would have had to seize the body very close to the time of death. They would then have to rush the body to whoever was performing the mummification procedure before any decay started to set in. The timing would have had to been exact. In a hot country such as Pakistan where the mummy was found, it was determined that a corpse would have had to begin the mummification process within just 24 hours of death. Though possible, it seemed unlikely to the investigators that this was the method used by the hoaxers. Instead, a second possibility arose, one that would actually be much darker than the gravedigger scenario. To those working the case, it became clear to them that the easiest and most probable course of action for the hoaxers would not have been to wait for the right time to steal a dead body, but instead to actually plan and carry out the act needed to collect a dead body themselves. In this theory, the hoaxers actually killed a woman and then immediately took her body to begin the mummification process. Once again, going back to the x-rays and CT scans, another big clue is found. Dr. Jeffrey Reese, who was a radiologist who used the ear bones of the mummy to prove that it was a recent death, noticed that the spine of the mummy was out of alignment. Several vertebrae in the lower spine seemed to be in an unnaturally forward position. To the doctor, it appeared as if the mummy had experienced a heavy traumatic blow to the lower spine, which more than likely broke the woman's back. However, in order to get the full details, an autopsy would have to be performed. At this point, the Pakistan investigation crew brought in yet another world expert, pathologist Chris Milroy, to conduct the autopsy. The bandages and gold mask and chest plate were removed from the mummy, and for the first time, a clear and total view of the body was achieved. During the autopsy, Chris Milroy found that, indeed, along the spine, several vertebrae suddenly veered off from forming a straight line. This would result in her spinal column snapping in two. The impact of whatever caused this trauma was determined to be the cause of death. Unfortunately, whether this injury was deliberately caused by an act of murder, or if this woman had just suffered a fatal accident of some kind, was impossible to prove. Putting the last metaphorical nail in the Persian princess coffin was when samples of bone and tissue were sent for carbon dating, and the results indicated that the woman had not died thousands of years ago, but actually had died in 1996. To this day, the responsible parties behind the hoax have not been found. In fact, several other fake Persian mummies have popped up since then on the market for millions of dollars. It would appear that whoever the mastermind was behind the elaborate hoax has continued their work, which again raises the disturbing question of where and how exactly is this person getting all the bodies needed to put out these fake mummies. Asma Ibrahim, the Pakistan museum curator who has worked on this case since the very beginning, said about these hoaxes. It's really shocking and is a cruel act of humanity to do this to another human being. I feel upset about it because they have damaged the sanctity of someone in such a disrespectful way. In an interesting turn of events, though the Persian princess mummy was eventually deemed to be a hoax by an international team of experts, the truth behind it was actually discovered much sooner than that by an entirely separate investigation. Sometime before the mummy popped up in Pakistan and made waves in the international historical waters, American archaeologist Oscar White Muscarella was approached by a man named Amanola Riggi, 
who claimed to be a middleman working on behalf of an unidentified antiquities dealer in Pakistan. Riggi showed Moscarello four photographs of a mummy in a wooden coffin, all along with a golden crown and mask and an inscribed breastplate. He also had a letter, along with the pictures, stating that the mummy was owned by a Pakistani acquaintance and claimed that the mummy was the daughter of the Persian king Xerxes. Riggi also had a one-page translation of the cuneiform inscriptions of the breastplate. Moscarello was told by Riggi that the owners also had a video of the mummy that could be sent to New York if the museum was interested in purchasing the princess. Though Moscarella never viewed this video, it is believed that it is possibly the very same video that would eventually lead Pakistan police to Ali Akbar, the starting point of this massive historical investigation. Wanting further information about the mummy, Muscarella contacted the translator of the inscription. The translator was an expert working at an American university, and after speaking with him, Moscarella discovered that the dealer's representative had not given him the complete analysis of the inscription. In fact, the entire second page of the analysis had deliberately been left out, which listed several problems with the mummy's inscription that led the scholar to believe that its author wrote in a manner inconsistent with Old Persian. The translator had concluded that the inscription was most likely a modern falsification, possibly dating back to the 1930s. In an attempt to dispute the translator's claim and show that the mummy was in fact legit, the dealer's representative sent a small piece of the wooden coffin to a carbon dating lab. This of course backfired completely when the results indicated that the coffin was only 250 years old. Moscarella, who had suspected immediately that the mummy was a fraud and now had proof of it, broke off communications with the dealer's representative. Though his part of the story was over, just seven months later, Pakistani police would end up raiding a house belonging to Wali Riki, and the Persian princess would surface yet again, but this time bringing the attention of worldwide historical experts and the international press. On April 17, 2001, half a year after the mummy's discovery, Pakistan's National Museum curator, Asma Ibrahim, issued an 11-page report declaring the mummy a fraud and possibly a murder victim. Ibrahim summed up the case by stating that the Persian princess was in fact a woman of about 21 to 25 years of age, who had died in 1996, possibly killed with a blunt instrument to the lower back. Her teeth had been removed after death, and her hip joint, pelvis, and backbone severely damaged, all before the body had been mummified. Following her official report, Asma Ibrahim had finalized her investigation and was finally done dealing with this grand hoax once and for all. As for the fate of the mummy, in August of 2005, the Edie Foundation requested to take custody of the body and announced that it would be interned with proper burial rites. However, due to their investigation, the police and government officials never responded to these requests. And it wasn't until three years later, in 2008, that the foundation finally was able to carry out the burial of this woman. The mummified remains of this unknown woman, whose discovery had years previously had the potential to be one of the most extraordinary archaeological finds of the modern time, had finally been laid to rest. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Strange Matters Podcast. If you have your own thoughts on the case of the Persian princess or have ideas or suggestions for future episodes, please feel free to write to us at our email, strangematterspodcast at gmail.com. You can also get in touch with us and follow us on our social media accounts on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Finally, we ask if you are listening to the show on iTunes, please take the time to leave a rating and a review. 
as it helps us to read your feedback, and it also helps promote the podcast so we can always reach new listeners. So until the next episode of the Strange Matters podcast, take care, everyone.